We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the lands which Deep Herd operates. Welcome back to the Grains Combo Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development in Western Australia. I'm Cindy Webster. And I'm Jeanette Pratt, and we are research scientists based in regional WA. These episodes shine a spotlight on the knowledge and tools developed by Deeper to grow the grains industry. There is a genetic mutation that confers resistance for synthetic pyrethroids in red-legged earth mites. And it's come down to that mutation has developed independently over a number of properties. So what that means is the resistance hasn't occurred in one property and then spread everywhere. It's occurred on your property and it comes down to what the spray regimes you've been putting in. In today's episode, I'm talking with deeper entomologist Betlana Mikik and Farmenko agronomist Brent Pritchard about red-legged earth mite. Welcome to the podcast, Vet and Brent. Hello. G'day. So before we get stuck into the pesky pest red-legged earth mite, it would be great to know a little bit more about both of you and how you know each other. Svet, we'll start with you. Can you give us a little bit of an intro about yourself? I've just found out it's my 20th year of working for the Ag Department. And I've been working on insect pests of broadacre crops for all that time. And that's how I know Brent, because he's an agronomist from my part of the world. And Brent, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I started with the Department of Ag way back 30 years ago. Started in Manjamup first and then transferred to Lake Grace. Then yeah, joined Elders as an agronomist and been working in the in the Great Southern since then. The last years in the Albany region, so lower south coast, high rainfall into the higher end of the medium rainfall, looking at pastures and crops as far as agronomy goes. Fetlana, at the end of February, you were presenting at the GRDC Grain Research Updates in Perth on the topic Russian wheat aphid and red-legged earth mite. In this episode, we're focusing on the red-legged earth mite. Can you tell us a little bit about what they are and why they are such a problem for WA farmers? So red-legged earth mites are a very small mite. They're about a mil long uh, with a black body and bright red legs. Once upon a time, they are the reason that we couldn't grow canola in Western Australia. They can be very damaging early season when crops are germinating. And one of the main things that we've found over the last few years is we've had red-legged earth mites that are starting to become resistant to many insecticides. And so they're surviving registered rates of insecticides, which makes it very difficult to grow a canola crop effectively. And Brent, can you tell us a little bit about some of the damage and other issues that your clients have faced when they've had a red-legged earth mite problem? Yeah, so canola specifically is establishment. As Svet said, right on germination, the red mite time their hatching quite often to coincide with that. So crops germinating with high levels of red mite often get eaten before they emerge and on emergence. Same can happen for pastures, especially on later breaks, which is where the red mite tend to be very synchronised in their hatching and that's just timed with pasture germination. So we can get complete loss of pasture legumes in that situation as well. 
And that's, I guess, we should mention here the life cycle of the red-legged earth mite is that over summer they are eggs inside a dead female's body and it's the opening rains in autumn combined with temperatures below 20 degrees over five days that initiate the hatching and that's why you can have a bit of a staggered hatching in some paddocks because it's the temperature range in a paddock can vary so you can have parts of the paddock which are cooler than other parts but at other times everything hatches at the same time and you can have mass hatchings of red-legged earth mites which can be quite damaging. Is there a particular soil type that red-legged earth mites go for? Uh, I wouldn't have said particular soil type. They're probably generally higher in numbers where you've got a pasture in the cropping rotation and where you've then got higher level of attractive food source like capeweed and pasture legumes. But predominantly capeweed, which doesn't grow so much on heavier soils. So your red loams, heavy grey clays tend to be a bit lower in red mite, but not necessarily so. And I guess one thing we have noticed is when you have canola crop that's growing in non-wetting soils and is actually a bit stressed, you tend to have the red-legged earth mite causing quite a bit more damage there because the crop just is not outgrowing the feeding damage. Svetlana, you mentioned before that red-legged earth mite has developed some resistance to organophosphates and synthetic pyrethroids. Can you tell us why that is and how extensive that issue is? Well, what we've done with a project that has been with co-investment with GRDC but being led by Caesar Australia, uh, what they've found is that there is a genetic mutation that confers resistance for synthetic pyrethroids in red-legged earth mites and it's come down to that mutation has developed independently over a number of properties. So what that means is the resistance hasn't occurred in one property and then spread everywhere. It's occurred on your property and it comes down to what the spray regimes you've been putting in. Organophosphate resistance is a little bit different in that the appears to be a more metabolic resistance, but there's a project that's actually looking at whether there's a point mutation on the genome that confers organophosphate resistance. That's still continuing. But it does appear that for organophosphates, the mite can work through the lower rates of the chemical and it dies at the higher rates. However, we are restricted to what we can spray and we need to spray chemicals that are registered for use in our paddocks at the maximum amount that they're registered at. So what that means is that for the organophosphates, the highest registered rate of the organophosphate in the paddock did not kill the red-legged earth mites. And no matter which synthetic pyrethroid you used, that point mutation conferred resistance to all synthetic pyrethroids. So it didn't matter what rate you used, didn't matter what you did, it was resistant to them. Brent, have you had any clients dealing with insecticide resistance in red-legged earth mites? Unfortunately, plenty. (laughs) Most now are very aware that they need to monitor more at critical times of the year. So mostly in that early autumn period through to when we know red might have hatched. Other things like trying to keep a clean border around paddocks. So if we know we've got refuges along the laneway or neighbouring paddocks that are staying as pasture, then keeping a a good weed-free boundary to stop the red mite coming in along the edges of those paddocks seems to work well. The other one as far as rotation goes is keeping a broadleaf weed-free cereal in the system where canola is going to be planted the following season. So not just focusing on the biggest weed 
issues, so like radish, but making sure we clean up both capeweed and pasture legumes is probably the most common weed that carries through red mite under the cereal canopy and allows the red mite to set eggs for the next year. And what about your pasture rotation? Is that still part of the cropping rotation? Yes, yep. And in the pastures, yeah, we still focus on a time right if it's going to go into a canola the following year. The other thing we do is try and rotate or mix the two chemical groups. So if we might not necessarily be targeting red mite, but if we're using an insecticide to target another insect when red mite are present, then try and use an organophosphate plus a synthetic pyrethroid. Do you have any other alternative control measures to add to what Brent's just touched on? So we ha- we did look at grazing during spring to control red-legged earth mite. Uh, there was a project that was done back in the 1990s by the department where they grazed for the entirety of spring and found that that would control red-legged earth mites quite effectively. Unfortunately, grazing the pasture to 1.2 tonne of feed on offer wasn't considered to be a logistically suitable option for a lot of people. So we really looked at that in 2020 and what we found was that if you graze your pastures down to under two tonne of food per hectare, you can actually decrease your red-legged earth mite numbers. And the amount that you decrease it by depends on what you started off with. So if you've got four tonne of food or more and you drop it down to two tonne, you can actually have less red-legged earth mites the following year, which will lead you to be able to grow a canola crop. So you can have under a 1,000 mites per square metre the following year, which you can grow a canola crop if you put a seed dressing on for mites of that number. However, it is a numbers game. And in other trials that we did, we dropped the numbers down to about 5,000 per square metre the following year, which is not enough to grow a canola crop, but you can grow a cereal crop. So grazing in spring is one option for pastures. But one of the big things that we've had a lot of people come back to us with is that in springtime, in cereals, they're still finding really high numbers of red-legged earth mites. And all of these growers are telling me they don't have weeds, Brent. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm at a bit of a loss as to what else they can do to drop their numbers of red-legged earth mites that are potentially resistant down in the year that they've got cereals before they grow their canola. Do you have any comments on that, Brent? Not on that specifically, but the pasture, grazing the pastures uh, certainly does work. As Svet said, though, the biggest issue is grazing the large cropping paddocks evenly enough. And most farmers, unfortunately, are not running mobs of a 1,000 plus sheep to graze down 100 hectares plus size paddocks through the spring. But they will graze the bulk of the paddock down fairly hard and have used that with good success and then just been strategic about where we monitor for the next year or where we apply insecticides. So we know by making a bit of a mud map that the sheep haven't grazed and often it is is one end of the paddock or, or a corner of the paddock. And so that's that's where we focus our, our efforts to identify the red mite and or spray. So, Svet, you've done some work looking at potential biological control methods for red-legged earth mite. Can you tell us a little bit about the French anistus mite and what you have found about its potential use? So the French anastus mite was actually introduced into WA in the 1960s by CSIRO. It was only in 1988 that 
the release sites were revisited by the department at that time um, in a project run by Phil Michael. And what they actually found was that the mite only persisted in those two original release sites that were done in the 1960s, one at Myling and one at Coolup. At Myling, the mite had spread 76 hectares, while at Coolup it only had spread 27 hectares. And what they actually did was they worked out that you need 40 anistus mite per square metre to control 80% of a population of red-legged earth mites in spring. The project then released mites throughout Western Australia, mainly targeting the higher rainfall regions. And in 2021, we actually got funding from GRDC in a project led by Caesar Australia to actually be able to go back to those sites and have a look at what had happened to those anistus mites. And out of the 36 release sites um, that were done by the department, what we found was it was only persisting in 10. And that original release site of Myling, we found no surviving mites because that entire property had been cropped. Whereas at Coolup, we still found them existing all those years later. So you said that you have to have about 40 mites per square metre for them to be effective. Is that right? Yes, but there's a few other things you also need to have, unfortunately. You need to have a pasture, and that's where they survived quite happily, anywhere where there was long-term pasture with uh, limited sprays. So any time a synthetic pyrethroid was sprayed, that controlled the French anisotis mite quite effectively. But what we found was that if you have a release site of French anisotis mite, in an area that cannot be sprayed and cannot be cropped, in the year that the adjacent paddock is in pasture, they will move in and colonise that paddock. You won't find them in any crop paddock, but they will move into paddocks that are pasture. But their spread is very slow. So their fit in a modern farming system is really only in areas of the paddock where you have refuges of red-legged earth mites that will move into your germinating crop and cause damage, or you have laneways that never get sprayed. So how long would it take for the French anistus mite to reach levels in those areas that you're referring to where they can actually have an impact on the red-legged earth mites? Now, the work that Phil Michael did, what he found was they did consecutive releases of the mite. So they released a 1,000 mites uh, two years running. And what they found was that within four years, the mite had actually spread enough and was causing a and was having an impact on the red-legged earth mite populations. It's a long-term proposition. <laughs> it's not something you can put out today and expect a result tomorrow. Yeah. And Brent, um, if French anistus mite will only provide downward pressure on red-legged earth mites if the paddock's not to be cropped, can you see any of your clients trying to use it as a control method? Yes, I actually can. So most most farms do have reasonably extensive laneways. Most of those laneways aren't cropped or sprayed significantly. Plus there's other potential refuges with potentially sort of fenced off saltier type areas where there's still going to be a red mite reservoir for them to feed on. So it might take a bit of thinking and planning, but yeah, I think for the most farms, uh, if they really want it to uh, persist, it can be done. Oh, that's really interesting to hear, Brent. Thank you for that. Svetlana, I've heard that there's also a red-legged earth mite hatching tool that might become available this year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the red-legged earth mite hatch tool has actually been available for the last few years. It's a predictive model based on rainfall events and on temperature that tells you when red-legged earth mites are predicted to hatch. And you haven't used it yet, Brent? 
No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right because we'll be plugging it in PestFax this year. It's fit really is at looking at those paddocks that are going to be cropped to canola, especially once canola has been sown and you're wondering whether the seed dressings are going to last and when the red-legged ethmites are going to hatch. So if the hatching date is similar to the seeding date, you know, you've got a little bit of time there that the seed dressing is going to protect the crop. But if the hatching time is predicted to be, what, four weeks, five weeks after? What do you reckon, Brent? Will the seed dressing still last by then? Uh, no. No, that'll be really helpful because most of the canola through the lower half of the state anyway is, and pretty much the whole state now, is sown really from 1st of April onwards. So if we know we've got canola germinating early in April, then we're generally going to be fairly safe as far as establishment goes. The last two years were probably the exception where we had hatchings of red mite in April, which is probably only the second time in my career that that's, I've ever observed that in Broadacre. So it was, yeah, certainly one for the books. But, yeah, having that tool available will give us a bit more heads up as far as when when we expect them to, to come out. So, yes, we'll be plugging it through PestFax, so hopefully you're subscribing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, making sure that we're actually getting the information out when we predict hatching to occur. So the tool's been tested for the last few years and um, it does download real-time data. So we should get real-time information as to when peak hatching is going to occur or when hatching is going to start. So watch out for it in PestFax this year. Thank you so much for joining me today, Svetlana and Brent. I appreciate your time. No worries. No problem at all. More information on this topic can be found in the show notes. If you like this episode, you can download and subscribe to Grains Convo on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'll be back on the 1st and 15th of every month with a new episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>